I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Shannon. She has congenital central hypoventilation syndrome. Let's talk about it. Well, we are joined by Shannon today, and uh, we're going to be talking about, about something that is like, that I, that I, Shannon, when I read your application to come on the show, my jaw dropped because I was fascinated by the, the contents that you included in your application, the sort of like, the way that you... You know, when you're trying to communicate like, um, or when somebody's trying to communicate an illness or like what it is that they're going through and they'll use certain examples of like what it's like to live with diabetes or what it's like to live with cystic fibrosis. So it's like, you know, sometimes people will go, yeah, I live with CF and, um, you know, it's oftentimes been like referred to a disease where it sort of feels like you're breathing through a straw or something. And then like, those are things where people hear and they go, holy shit. Well, Shannon lives with... CCHS, congenital central hypoventilation syndrome. Did I get that right? Yeah, perfect. Amazing. <laughs> and the examples that Shannon gave to like kind of just drive home what it might feel like for one to live like with this fucking blew my mind. This is what Jer said to me a, a couple hours ago, Shannon. He's I, I I made a reference. I was I was reading through I was reading through the 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 bullet points that you gave us. And, and I said something to Jeremy about our, the recording that we were going to have. And, and, and Jer said, she might die if she takes a nap. And Dude, the way you guys are drawing yeah. out this introduction, she might fall asleep. So let's cut to the fucking chase before she dies. Yeah, we don't, we don't want to kill you, Shannon. So, so uh, before we dive into like the ins and outs of CCHS, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm a mom of two. I have a seven-year-old son who also lives with CCHS, and I have a 20-month-old daughter um, who is just really bright and funny and loving my life with my kids, and I'm also a social worker and a PhD candidate. Amazing. Cool. Cool. And, uh, yeah. and I know that you also do some like disability advocacy, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, but before we, we get into all that, can you give us a rundown? What is congenital central hypoventilation syndrome? What does that mean? Yeah. So what it means is congenital, you're, you're normally born with CCHS and it affects your central nervous system. Um, so what it typically presents as when people are born is your automatic function to breathe when you sleep just isn't there. 
So it's technically classified as a neurological condition. So your brain literally stops communicating with your diaphragm and your lungs and other bodily functions to keep breathing. So you have like no response whenever you sleep. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> See what I mean? <laughs> wait, wait. How are you alive? I know. Because like, I mean, I, like I could under, I, I don't even, I don't know anything about this. So like I could imagine that if they found out that you had this and they were able to like give you some sort of mechanism to help you, I could understand how you could be alive. Yeah. But when you find out that you have this and if you're born with this, like how don't you, how don't you just, how don't you just die? Does babies sleep all the time? Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, a lot. But, um, so there's only 1,200 people in the world with CCHS. Wow. And wow. My, my twin sister and I are the third and fourth oldest ones in Canada with it. Whoa. And it's estimated that a lot of babies have passed away from what people have thought would be SIDS. Oh, that was nice. actually CCHS. Oh my goodness! So wow. How how did how did your parents find out, or the doctors find out that you had yeah. it? Yeah. So when my sister and I were born, when we were about four hours old, we started turning blue and dusky. So the doctors kept us for observation. They noticed that, and then they knew something was wrong, like pretty quickly. Um, and we were intubated from like four hours old to three months old. Wow. 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 Can, can you, uh, are you, are you familiar with like the, the sort of, the sort of biomechanics of like what's happening in your body? Like you're awake right now. You're sitting, you're, you're talking to us. Um, yep. you seem like you, it looks like you're breathing. Um, yeah. looks like you're breathing <laughs> <Yeah>. fine. <laughs> uh, but why is it? What's the, what's the specific mechanic uh, mechanism that's happening that once your eyes close and you go into la la land, that your body just goes, well, let's just go all the way and yeah. do the forever sleep. So it's actually a genetic mutation that causes this neurological breathing disorder. And that genetic mutation, it makes our bodies not sense CO2 buildup. So that gas hmm. that you breathe out every time that you exhale, our body doesn't sense that. So what our body does is our CO2 would literally keep climbing and climbing until wow. we were like basically poisoning ourselves with, with the CO2. Holy wow. shit. And that's fascinating because I think that probably the most fascinating part about that is it for me is that these are automatic um, or autonomic functions, whether yeah. you're asleep or awake, like they're, they, they're, they're still yeah. auto autonomic when you are awake and yeah. I can't remember, I think it's the amygdala that handles that autonomic functions, but like, what is it, or are you aware of what it is specifically when <laughs> you fall asleep? Like, like it, so it, it, your body can sense the CO2 buildup when you are, when you're awake, obviously, because you're, you're not, or, um, or, do, or do you have to, or do you have to think more consciously about your breathing when you're awake? So yes and no. So when we're awake, typically our bodies just have that automatic response to breathe. But if there's anything that like physical endurance, so things, our son started playing hockey this year and we noticed pretty quickly that whenever he's trying to skate hard for an extended period of time, he will complain of headaches and his oxygen levels will drop. Wow, so wow. like our bodies don't tell us to compensate 
for when our CO2 is is climbing. Okay. So like things like swimming and anything with endurance, we have to like kind of count in our heads to like five. I literally count to five and take a deep breath to remind ourselves to like blow off that CO2. Whoa. So so like if you were swimming, if you were like swimming and and like when I'm swimming and I'm, I try to like take three strokes and then breathe or whatever. Um, I would take three strokes and then I know, like I, I can sense can like, holy, sh- holy shit, yeah. I need to like breathe or I'm going to drown. Yeah, we, but like you could just keep that. going. You wouldn't know that you had to breathe. Yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah. So, so it's, so it's not a matter of the body not being capable of doing this thing. It's that your body just doesn't do it. You don't send yourself yeah, the signals. Yeah, it just doesn't do it. Do it. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, right. And you just yeah. don't get the signals. Right. I, think, right. I think it's an incredible... Fuck, that's so fascinating. It really is an, an incredible sort of reminder of how, how much, how easily, how easy you can take your breathing for granted and, and especially when you're exercising. For, like for me, like, mm-hmm. what, like, cause I think when I'm exercising that I'm thinking quite a bit about my breathing, but I'm probably not. Yeah. Right. It's probably 90 plus percent yeah. automatic and, f- you know, mm-hmm. maybe five or so percent, uh, f- five to 10% like of me going, I'm breathing in extra because I know that I'm working hard, but I don't have to divert that energy. Like I, so I would imagine that for exercise, like does that, you know, if you want, if you wanted to exercise and with your son, if you, as you're seeing in hockey, if he wants to continue to play hockey, like, does that just become so challenging that it becomes almost impossible to do because you, because so much of your, of your brain power is diverted to thinking the about breathing, breathing that takes yeah. away from the capacity to do all the other stuff that's kind of going on in the, in that kind of arena? Um. So actually, when we look at patients with CCHS as a whole, we have competitive athletes, specifically in swimming and in hockey as well, that have CCHS. So they have learned to just work those deep breaths into their sport and to be able to compensate for that. Um when our son will learn to do that, who knows? He's only seven. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, he loves playing hockey. And mm-hmm. I always grew up with baseball and I loved baseball. And that didn't require much endurance at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> good old baseball. Yeah, <laughs> Just sit back baseball. on your laurels. and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, um, yeah, for some people... I think it's just something you grow, you are born with, and you just learn to compensate. Yeah, you adapt. If you want to participate in something, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I want to go back to like when you were a, a baby, when you were born, and and the doctors intubated you because I'm imagining when they intubated you, they didn't know it was CCHS right away, or, mm-hmm. or maybe not. But um, what like what had to happen in that moment? Because also like the crazy thing about if you if you're not getting sleep, then you can also die from a lack of sleep. So like if they don't figure out what's going on quickly, then um, there's also that risk, I imagine. Especially development and babies and sleep, oh, and, yeah. sleep and development is so totally. yeah, intertwined. So, so like what happened when they intubated you? So yeah, we were intubated pretty quickly when we were about four <laughs> hours old. Um, and we stayed intubated until we got our tracheostomies at like three months old. 
Holy um, shit. Yeah. And oh, your poor we, parents. Yeah. And they were given our diagnosis in an elevator. So to even think <laughs> what? Like, Wait, what? what? Yeah. The doctor <laughs> gave my parents the diagnosis in an elevator. What the fuck is I mean, yeah. I guess the I guess the CCHS <laughs> elevator pitch is like <laughs> Is like, yeah, breathing's real hard. So anyway, uh, yeah. have a good day and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even imagine like what my parents went through, oh. not knowing what it was or um, what life could be like living with this yeah. condition. But yeah, we were intubated and then we were trached when we were three months old. It took three months to get that diagnosis. Um, so we both had biopsies done. We both had genetic tests done. The biopsies showed nothing because they originally thought it was a muscular disorder. Um, and then the genetic test came back positive. So how old are you now? 35. Okay. And, and so obviously at this point in time, like when you were born 35 years ago, um, it was C... Uh, CCHS was like a known thing. I'm guessing it was still extraordinarily rare, probably more rare than it probably is today. Yeah, like no one heard of it. Doctors would learn about it from t- a textbook. Sure. Um, but no one had ever seen an actual case of it in Canada, in Ontario specifically. Um, so I re- just remember my parents telling me that um there were just so many consultations happening to figure out what was going on um, that it took three months for a diagnosis and no one could tell them what quality of right. life would be well, like. And well, both you and your sister had it, correct? Yeah. Neither, well, neither, only, neither of your parents did though. Right. Yeah. So it didn't run in our family. It was just a, a freak genetic mutation that happened. Mm. And like, were both of your parents carriers? Like, is that, is it kind of like CF where like, Mm. or it just, it just was like in utero. Yeah. It just randomly happened. Yeah. You're uh, you're, you're identical twins. Yeah. We're identical. Mm -hmm. Um, Real twins. Yeah. You you can't tell us (laughs) apart at all. (laughs) And, Uh, and so 35 years later, um, uh, how, like how has your sister managed uh, the, the CCHS? Are you guys kind of, did you, did you guys sort of handle it very similarly or or can it look really different from person to person in terms of like severity? So that's an interesting question. My sister and I have pretty much identical symptoms of it. Our case is actually considered mild, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. So the genetic mutations <laughs> can range from 2025 all the way up to 2035 and our mutation is 2026. So it's on the lower spectrum of CCHS. Um, once you get to like people with 2036 mutations, they might be on a ventilator 24 oh, seven and wow. have no drive to breathe at all. Holy and, shit. And is, wow. your, is your trach, the trach that your sister, um, that you and your sister got, is that for is that for for like treatment for like hookup while you while you're sleeping or is yeah. it for every day like all through the day? No, you... so like um, you can't really ventilate a baby using a sleep apnea mask. Right. So you use the trach to hook up a ventilator too. Um, and then when we were eight years old, our trachs were able to come out 
and oh, okay. we we transitioned to a BIPAP. Okay. Oh okay. wow, that's so yeah. that's so interesting. I'm like, okay, so so as Jer- as somebody who once used a CPAP machine, Jeremy has sleep apnea. <laughs> Jeremy has sleep apnea really badly. Sorry, did like, you did you mean that as like as someone who used it once? As somebody, yeah, yes, exactly. Because that's exactly it. <laughs> that's I used I mean. it fucking once. That's, that's, I know. So Jer- so Jared Jared's got the worst case of sleep apnea known to um, humankind, and, and still is in denial. He still has it. And and he is won't, in won't denial. He's in yeah. denial. He won't use his sleep. He, he won't use his, his CPAP machine. I'm, I'm not going to get into. It. There's there's been <laughs> it's uncomfortable. There has for been realizations. I'm not going to get into it right now because it, that's that's for another episode. Maybe we can talk about a feel good Friday. But um, not complying to. Your treatment, yeah, right. Yeah. You're goddamn so, right. So, I so, and and so, so the point being is that Jeremy needs a CPAP machine, but refuses to use it because he doesn't want to use it because it's uncomfortable. He doesn't like the airflow. It's and annoying, like it's and it also doesn't look. He's it's annoying. He feels bro. like it doesn't yeah. look. Yeah, cool. he wants to look chic while he's sleeping, which he feels the right. CPAP machine. It's not Balenciaga, <laughs> and so, and so, I'm I'm curious about. Uh, I mean, obviously, I've never had a trach. No idea the complexities or the discomforts or any of that that have to do with it. I've never even talked to, I don't think I've ever had an in depth conversation with somebody um, with a trach or at least not about their trach. Um, and so my, my total inexperienced, knows nothing brain wants to go, wow, a trach sounds a lot easier to hook up into your throat than to put on a mask that, um, you know, could have all these things you know, mess up your sleep in terms of like the discomfort or all this stuff. And my trach is far more. Am I I completely wrong? Am I completely wrong about that? Is a trach just like super undesirable and the mask is a way better way to go? So, um, lots of doctors told us that, that the trach is a guaranteed airway. It's easier because you just hook a ventilator up to it. It won't cause bone structure issues on a face while a kid is growing up. But it's invasive. You can catch illnesses so quickly with it. Right. Because um, you're not filtering. Because, uh, you're not yeah, filtering exactly. like, through your nose yeah. and mouth like you would rent. Interesting. Yeah. Um, if especially when our son was in daycare, you'd have another kid cough and it would go directly into his trach. Yeah. Um, can you can, for people it, who for people who don't know? Because I, I feel like there's probably some people who aren't even like really aware of what a like a what a tracheostomy Im, like implies and what that looks like mm-hmm. can you can you explain what that means uh for people who just like are trying to picture it in their head and i feel like there's probably some people picturing something far different from what it what it really is oh yeah for sure so a trach is a tube that goes in basically just under your focal cords and it is a permanent tube that um is your essentially your airway so it looks like a plastic white necklace that people wear sometimes um there you have to suction it because you don't have function of your nose that's typical so any snot that you build up you have to suction that out with the suction machine Mm, um yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so if you have lots of boogers you could be suctioning like 50 times a day yeah right Um, did you have lots of boogers i like don't remember being suctioned as a kid i think just because like my parents made it normal and it was just part of like day-to-day stuff um for my son yeah if he was sick we would be suctioning like 
sometimes 50 times a day. Oh, wow. yeah. I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. Did you, did you know um, that there was a chance that your, your kids could have CCHS um, when you were getting pregnant or like, how did that, how did that work? Yeah, so we knew that there was a possibility of any biological kid having CCHS. And then when I was five months pregnant, we got an amniocentesis done, um, which confirmed CCHS in our son when I was like just over five months pregnant. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you? The actual amniocentesis amniocentesis or learning he would have cchs about about learning that he would have cchs because i i think of like um jeremy's parents finding out that he had cystic fibrosis um you know after he was born but like mm-hmm. it's always been interesting to me to think about what it might be like for a parent who actually lives with that um yeah. illness already to to think about that um i guess what yeah what was that experience like for you um like the first and so I literally got a phone call telling me the result while I was driving my car. Um, Fuck, dude, doctors just so, are shitty at finding the right yeah. situation to and he tell was you, or your you parents. from the elevator. So, like, spotty, <laughs> yeah. spotty, uh, it's like this is reception. what I did with your yeah. parents. Bye. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was like a Friday afternoon. So, I think it was just like. Okay, we have to let this person know before the weekend. Let's get this over with and call them. Um, I think I was initially, I think my heart sank because I thought of all the extra struggles my kid would have Mm. to go through. There was definitely like a level of guilt there as well for Mm. passing it on. Um, But I was also really confident that... um, yeah, my son would live with this, but he would make it for what it was and still be able to have quality of life and do whatever he wants to mm. in mm-hmm. life. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. From the um from the from the perspective of like the guilt, um the feeling of guilt that that you felt and and as somebody with um as a social worker and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm assuming your PhD is 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 in social work. So it's in public health. So I'm studying mental health outcomes of children living with chronic physical illnesses. Okay, right. So it's very, it's yeah. all, it's all very topical. It's for, for yeah. You. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I'm, I'm curious about, um, you know, from the lens of somebody living with a genetic disease, you pass it on to your child, but you also have this experience with social work, which centers around childhood yeah. disease. Um, how did you sort of uh, analyze that those feelings of guilt? Because that's a very interesting, you know, something that we've discussed with, um, um, that we've had conversations with Jeremy about with cystic fibrosis because it's a genetic thing. Like, it's a very fascinating uh, topic around, especially as we progress in medicine and things get better and easier, mm-hmm. and you know, outcomes become better. Yeah, yeah like kind of. Give, give us some uh, context around that, those those feelings and how you dealt with yeah. them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, immediate guilt and what the f did I just do? <laughs> Lots of those feelings. Um, but also went to counseling pretty early on to learn how to deal with the guilt and move through it and 
just adapt to what our new life would be um, and to always keep an open mind about one day our son might have questions about why he lives with this disease and to be open with him about that um, and to always foster an environment and and communication where he feels comfortable talking about it mm-hmm. and comfortable talking about any blame that he might place on us or comfortable talking about what are the effects of living with this disease. Um, so just, yeah, working through a lot. I think a lot of the guilt came through my own <laughs> trauma experiences. So working through that trauma and um, coming out, not really coming out of it, but learning how to cope with some traumatic experiences I've had and learning some coping strategies and um, how basically how not to put that on my kid. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Was there was there part of that? Um, I, I guess um, I guess my question is, how, how did that affect your relationship with your your partner? Like feeling those feelings and also, I guess, yeah. Yeah. How did that affect your relationship with your partner? (laughs) So he's like a very logical person. He's a black and white thinker. He's like, it just is what it is. Like we can't go back now. We can't change it. So we live with it and we're going to do the best we can with it. And just, um, he doesn't like dwell on stuff. He just thinks pragmatically and, just thinks about, okay, how can we make this work for our son? Mm-hmm. So um, he he went through like his own counseling process, but he's just like the personality type that um, it's always like logical and what's the next step. And mm-hmm. let's just focus on the here and the now. Well, it looks like we just crossed 5 million podcasts in the world, so it is with some humility that I introduce mine, Kelly Corrigan Wonders. Once a week, we share heart-to-hearts with smart, good people like Brian Stevenson, Anna Quinlan, Father Greg Boyle, talking about how we treat each other, how we treat ourselves, and how we might do both better. Kelly Corrigan Wonders is a podcast for people who like to laugh while they think and aren't afraid of feelings. Join us for Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I, I would love to I would love to kind of just like bring it back to the 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 sort of evolution of um of treatments that you specifically went through because I I find it really again like we're we're talking about something that is lifelong. We're talking about something that is I mean I it really does make me think about CF a lot. Um we're the same age. Uh we're both born with something that we you know, we were both born with uh genetic Mm-hmm. Uh, disease um and like cf has come so far since i was yeah. born like in really really big ways and so um i'm sort of just kind of curious first to hear about your experience from like birth to now and then would love to like get a sense of what that experience has been like for your son and and kind of compare the two um so you were you were on you were on a trach until did you say 8 yeah 
What yeah. came out? What came after that? And what did that look like? And then, and the, you know, like what were the the sort of technological transitions over time up to where you are now? Because obviously, you don't have a trach. I don't like it. No, nope, no. I trach. can only see your your head, but like it also <laughs> no doesn't trach. seem yeah. like you've got any any other kind of device right now that's like assisting no. or supporting you. So like, what were what were the the technological uh, treatment transitions that you had throughout your lifetime? Yeah. So intubation breathed for me until I was three months old and then a tracheostomy and a ventilator until I was eight years old Hmm. when sorry I say weeks like my sister and I went through this together sure so I like I think that's why uh we've both been so adaptable with this is because we had each other to lean on through everything totally Mm -hmm. yeah um So when we were eight, we got our tracheostomies removed and we were in the hospital for about a month and a half to learn how to sleep with a mask on our face um, because not sleeping with it is not an option. So it took us like a month and a half. Our parents got to the point where they literally bribed us with a loony every night if we Mm. slept with the mask on. Shiny Um, money. Yeah, we made like over a hundred (laughs) bucks. Nice, sick. Like it really, really, all it really took was fifteen. But you guys were like, just, just fucking milk this. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? That time. That's so interesting. They're like bribing you with a dollar to be be like, hey, you sleep with this mask on. Or you will die. But like, I guess, I guess, but I guess the question is like at eight years old, like, like do you not like, know the consequences at yeah. eight right. years old. Yeah. And, and I'm curious, like, do you remember anybody like telling you what the consequences might be? Yeah. So when we were teenagers, I remember um, our parents just like reiterating quite a bit, like, this is how you stay safe. You have to, um, like there's no if and ands or buts. Like you have to be compliant with ventilation, yeah. Um, or you will have either like brain damage or just not wake up. So, um, yeah, I just it was like I remember those conversations. I don't think it was ever used as like a scare tactic. Mm-hmm. It was just like a safety conversation conversation yeah. and. It was, it's just like so ingrained and part of your daily life. Well, I guess nightly life, but you just become used to it. Right. So Mm -hmm. it was never like out of the ordinary or something that, um, felt weird or different. It was just part of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And in in terms of like a child trying, you know, that, that, that period of time trying to learn how to sleep with the mask on, I'm imagining it's different from like a mask that you would see someone wearing using a CPAP or something like, like it's the same. It's it's the same. same. So, Oh wow. So like, there's no extra sort of like headgear to make sure that fucking thing is snug and not going to move if you're like a wiggly sleeper or something. No. So like you sleep with, it's literally like the same machine as the sleep apnea machine, just different settings. Right. Sure. And it's a face Um, mask, like over nose, over mouth face mask. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Just nose, not mouth. Okay. So, um, and we also like sleep with an oximeter. So our oxygen is continuously monitored when we sleep. So if for some reason the mask comes off, there's an alarm on the machine or ventilator that will alert us to that. And if it came off for some reason for a prolonged period and you didn't respond to those alarms, then your oxygen level would would start to drop and your oximeter alarm would go off. Wow. So there's 
Yeah, there's multiple alarms built in to. Well, that's um, good. Yeah, yeah, right. Do you, um, you know, for for anybody who's not for, uh, familiar, like the 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 sort of like normal, um, quote unquote, levels for um, your oxygen levels, your SpO two levels are, are like ninety five to one hundred percent as you're like walking around. For for you, what what is that when you are walking around during the day? Is that is that the case for you at night? So, like what's yeah, the case like, and what's the actually, level for you? During the day when we're like walking around, just living life, our oxygen levels are typically a bit higher than most people's, like 97 to 100, because we typically overventilate at night to compensate for the daytime. Oh, and so you retain that, it. Yeah. So early wow. in the morning, our oxygen levels are usually like really like a hundred percent most mornings close to bedtime our oxygen levels are probably like around 95 96 okay um so yeah daytime it's pretty typical it's literally just at nighttime that you see that this disorder is evident so it's very it's very hidden during the day um it's just at nighttime that it becomes a visible disability Mm. so So for for just I want to continue yeah. on the on the oxygen there for a second when yeah. when when you if you were to um uh, like whatever if if you were to do something for exercise um and and you wanted something that is more than a more than you needing to remember and have that built in uh sort of memorization of of learning to breathe could you could you use a pulse oximeter that's like on, on like a wearable on a watch or something like that to yeah. to to remind you to like th- that you could set a level that beeps or everything and that's like yo you need to breathe now. Yeah, that's actually why quite a few people CCHS do whenever they're doing like physical endurance sports or activities. Um, they'll wear like a smartwatch with reminders, but I think like. Growing up, it just becomes so ingrained within you that mm. deep breathing, it's funny because like as a social worker, you teach deep breathing to some clients, but for like us growing up, that was just always ingrained in us to take a deep breath like every so often. So yeah. yeah. Wow. Silver yeah. lining probably mm-hmm. probably helped in many other ways. Do yeah. you um do you do <laughs> yoga? <clears throat> No, I hate yoga. <laughs> that means and I know you guys that means you should probably yoga. do it. <laughs> no, 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 that's did, fine. Did you did was there any other transitions from that point forward from like having the CPAP um yeah. on the nose? Did you have to like what what was the next iteration so of that? When, yeah, so when my sister and I were 16, we got phrenic nerve pacemakers. And what that is is pacemakers on both diaphragms so that will actually send an electric shock from your phrenic nerves to your diaphragms to keep inflating and deflating 12 times a minute holy shit yeah so then we don't have to live with like a ventilator anymore get the fuck out of here yeah what and and the the insertion of that is that a is that like laparoscopic or are they, or is that like quite a... Okay, so this is like going back to 2004. Sure. It was like a really intense surgery back then. 
But now it's a freaking Now you can just swallow it. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I'm like, what the heck? Because, yeah, not nearly as invasive as it used to be. Um, So it still requires like an external component because it's not like a cardiac pacemaker that will pace um, automatically. But the phrenic nerve pacemakers require an antenna to be turned on when you sleep. And that antenna will signal to the phrenic nerve to for the diaphragm to like open and close. Wait, wow. so do you have that wait, so, cool. so, so do you have to turn it on? Yeah, you do. Oh I'll, I'll actually grab it and show it to you guys. Yeah, it's sweet. Yeah. Just a second. How sweet would it be? Like they just installed a light switch on her belly button. It's just like flick yeah. it up. I've been, I've, I've been asking to, die, uh, to ask a question about um, because like one of my favorite things to do is is to like put on a, a TV show and fall asleep on the couch and like yeah. doze off for like 20 to 30 minutes and then go to bed. Um, and so I like my question for you is like. I wonder you're always exhausted, Bri. No, dude, I sleep eight <laughs> hours a night. <laughs> But uh, my question is like, is like, it would that be a scary thing for you, or like, are you not able to do that? Could you not like fall so, asleep watching a show or a movie? So you don't have so, the pa- you don't have the pacemaker on like right now. No, that's what I'm wondering. No. Yeah. Okay, right. Don't it's only it. it's only yeah. right. It's only, only during when you sleep. Yeah, but so like if you're like watching so this, Oh shoot! Just <laughs> let me turn the background. Uh, yeah. No, that's not going to work. That's so okay. It's we like can see this it. Yeah. Size. Yeah. And there's white antennas. So like each holy, antenna holy shit. hooks up to the phrenic nerve. Holy fuck. Yeah. And you tape it on the t- phrenic nerve. And that sends the signal like 12 times. Wow. So so for our listeners, like you're basically holding up these these little yeah. these little pasty rings it looks like like and you just yeah. you you, st- you stick those on your body almost like you would like, like doctor hose oh yeah we're like a, <laughs> or like an AED or something and it attaches to yeah, a little box yeah. and so once that it's box like is AED, flicked yeah. do, do you feel it when when it's on like is it a little zap where you're like oh fuck yeah you definitely feel it but we have crazy apps because your sure. basically your apps are like contracting 12 times a minute so all night long, um, all night long. Yeah, all That's night it. long, dude. That is Doctor Hose, <laughs> honestly. That, yeah, right, Doctor Hose. Yeah, right. <laughs> or the, right, app, the, the app, the right. app, whatever the app um, thing is. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, Shannon. Like, you're, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming you're, wow. you, you're probably quite familiar with the, uh, with the mechanics uh, of, of breathing. And I thought I was too. And now I'm having this realization <laughs> um, know, that shit. maybe I know a little less than I thought I did because I, I know that the diaphragm is heavily involved in our, in our breathing. But is is breathing, is the source or the root of breathing, at least deep breathing, uh, is, is the root of, of, the, of a deep breath the diaphragm? Like the actual process starts from the diaphragm. Like the diaphragm moves and acts as like a suction pump for the lungs to fill up. Is that what? Yeah. Is it, I have no idea. No, that, that is no it. Idea. That yeah, is what's yeah, happening? That, that's exactly it. So it's like negative pressure, right? Like the diaphragm goes the diaphragm when you go to initiate a breath the diaphragm goes this sounds like bro science pulls down and then it it's no, no Brian, it's like it's, it's like it's like a, it sounds like, like it yeah, here I'll, here i'll bro science it for you i'll bro science it for you it's how you make a gravity bong that's right exactly it, you your your diaphragm is gravity bonging your lungs with oxygen <laughs> I think, we're I think, getting so fucked on oxygen fire dude, diaphragm's gravity it's like, bong see, i knew <laughs> i knew that that i knew that i knew that the diaphragm had that like that was the process nice bong sound that was a good bong sound (laughs) um 
it's better if you put some liquid in your mouth. Um, it, I know that that's the process of breathing and that the diaphragm plays a heavy role in, in that. But I also know that you can sort of like breathe, you can breathe up top and not use your diaphragm very much. I, but you have to have the ha- diaphragm. So the, like the diaphragm, is u- the diaphragm is being used in... That's what Jared does in, when he's in, sleeping. In, in some way, no matter what. Because the 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 like your lungs aren't the muscle that are that are that are producing no. your breath, and it's also not coming from your nose either. So like the, I, the root is the from the, what the I root gather is the diaphragm, yeah. and the diaphragm is what actually makes the air come in through your nose. That's right, and, and what, from what I gather, like like for example, people in like people in the ICU when they're given a medication that can that can essentially shut off their like their autonomic breathing. Like a like an uh, like a an opioid or overdose or something like mm-hmm, that. It's mm-hmm. it's just that your muscles just go, right, and so and yeah. they stop, and so your your diaphragm's going. Well, I, I'm not gonna work. So you need Doctor Hose. You need the Doctor Hose, or you need a diaphragm that works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's that's so crazy. So so every night you do that, and I guess like just coming back to when you when it was 2004. So you were what, like 15, 16, 16? Yeah. and yeah. you, when you got this, when you got, when you went like, all right, we're getting rid of the CPAP and we're taking on the, the, like the Dr. Hose, were you, was that a hard transition of like learning how to sleep with this constant, um, abdominal um, stimulation or was it, was it pretty simple? Yeah. So like going from the BiPAP to the phrenic nerve pacemakers, It was a six-week recovery process, and then you have to build up tolerance to, like, the electrical shocks that you're given. Oh, right. So it probably took me about a week to build up to full night on the phrenic nerve pacemaker. Um, Because, yeah, it is a shock. You definitely feel it. Um, And after that week, I never looked back to using a ventilator because... Um, yeah, I didn't have to sleep with something on your face anymore. You now have to tape these antennas over the phrenic nerve implants, but that's like your sleep quality just improves a lot. Of course. Yeah. Um, you can be more mobile when you sleep. If you want to fall asleep watching TV or reading a book, just slap those things on. Yes put it on and you can still like get up to like go to the bathroom if you need to without right. disconnecting. Right. From right. right. Do, wow. Yeah. Do what you, a change. Do you kind of, do you feel like a car in a Canadian winter? You know, like um, you just got to like plug it in at night type of thing. Like, yeah. like, like other than that, like, like is how much that's does, even such a foreign concept for like even anybody. Yeah. Like, East yeah. Of Winnipeg yeah, yeah is like what? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <guys. laughs> Do you, to like, like how much does CCHS affect your daily life? Um, like honestly for myself, I never even identified with having a disability at all. It was something that I never really considered until we got the diagnosis for my son and then we were like okay if we want him to be able to talk about this then I need to do my own work and identifying as a disabled person Mm -hmm. and doing that um but it doesn't like it doesn't impact my daily functioning um what it does impact is like if I get sick um my oxygen levels will decrease quite rapidly 
So like recovering from say pneumonia will take me a really long time to recover from. Mm -hmm. Um, And any type of like respiratory illness can like hit us pretty hard. Right. But like, like even looking back though, as like a, as like a young, you know, like an adolescent, like how, do you, do you recall this having like an effect on your social life? Like, I'm just, I'm thinking about my upbringing, right? And it was like, sleepovers were a big thing. And, yes, you know, and yeah. like, even for me, like having to bring my, my, um, my nebulizer, which yeah. is, which I had to do it, you know, before I went to bed and when I woke up, like that was sort of, that was sort of a pain in the ass. Uh, yeah. so kind of embarrassing sometimes. Um, but like in your case, it's, it's so much more. It's so much more dire. It's like if you don't have yeah, this thing, you're fucking yeah. dead, right? It's and dire, then, yeah. But then, yeah. but then there's like, then I think about you know when I'm like 19 and I go and I get fucking hammered at like a bar for the first time, and then I come home and I I'm so drunk, yet I still I have this like because it's it's second nature. I know I have to do my nebulizer, but I pass out doing it, and it's like yeah. when I wake went, up, or you went home somewhere else, or I went home somewhere else, and I just didn't fucking do it, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. like, like those times, those like transitional times in your life when you're like, a, you know, a young teen or like early twenties, like, did it have effects on your social life or the ways that you viewed? Kind yeah. of. Yeah. So like, as an adult now, um, like it doesn't really impact daily functioning. But yeah, those social (laughs) impacts as a teenager and say like a young adult in your 20s, definitely need to make your friends aware of Mm. what you need if you're drinking. Um, It definitely, like, I feel like my sister and I, we've never been like blackout drunk before. Good. We've always like... (laughs) That's a good thing. Yeah. (laughs) Um. (laughs) We've definitely like recognized the importance of um, knowing our limits, how to be Mm. safe. But yeah, it can definitely be awkward conversations. So for example, like we never went on sleepovers as kids because you can't really put that type of responsibility on another parent. Sure. You can't. um, Yeah, I think like our first sleepover with a friend was like when we were 16 or 17 when we knew and took responsibility for like our own equipment. So yeah, definitely miss, missed out on a lot of sleepovers as a kid. I don't think those are as popular now, but um, yeah, that was kind of like looking back on childhood. It was really just anything involved with sleep was what impacted our social life and made for awkward conversations when like we started dating. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. What was that? What was that like? Yeah. Like get, getting into dating and talking about it. Yeah. So like with my husband, I didn't even tell him about CCHS till like six months into the relationship. Holy Whoa. shit. Yeah. yeah. We were like, well, we were like 18 when we started dating. Um, and I didn't, like, it was our disability, like, it's never something we share too much about, because growing up, we were never really taught how to have those conversations with our friends, or how to um, even introduce that topic. So I think that was like a huge learning curve. And I never want to, I don't know, you're a teenager, you don't want to be judged yeah. by yeah. your peers, you don't want to appear different. But 
this is like the one aspect of our life, sleeping, that is very different than most people's. So um, thankfully, my husband was like, okay, what do I need to know about it? And let's move on. Like, yeah, he yeah. wasn't, yeah. On the um, on that note of on that note of of not really being um, taught or, or equipped with the with how to have those conversations um, growing up, in and in contrast to feeling to to those feelings of regret um, when you found out that your son was positive for CCHS, what was did you also have a sense of of like of gratitude in the sense that you could sort of pass on like you did you didn't have somebody you didn't have somebody older than you in your family that could that could that could go hey i i know what you're going through and like here's how to navigate yeah. and here are some of the tips and tricks of the trade with living with this and but you are that and can be that for for your son is there a sense of gratitude that you can kind of show him a path that you might yeah. never have had access to yeah, I think like growing up, my sister and I were just each other's support. So I'm not sure like we would have those conversations with each other, but then to share a disability conversation with, say, our friends, we just didn't feel comfortable doing that. And we would just talk about it with each other. Um, I hope with my son that one, I feel like the world in gener- general or maybe just Canada is becoming more disability friendly mm-hmm. and supporting inclusion. And um, I just feel like differences are more celebrated and there's not like a stigma so much anymore of being disabled and being less than or not deserving of something. So I feel like hopefully with our son, he feels comfortable I know like I can give him some insight into having these conversations and living with this disability, but I'm also like very aware of my journey won't be his journey. Yeah. So I want to respect um, like his own process and his own thoughts and not overshadow those because my journey might have been different. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the differences there, like, what did it look like for your son when he was born? Com- excuse me, compared yeah. to when you were. Okay, so he has it easy compared to <laughs> my back in my day. Yeah. We had and to like, walk I uphill mean, both ways. Right? And my parents are always like, when I was growing up, I'd have to walk to and from school, even over lunch hour. And like, yeah, that was back in the 60s. And I would never <laughs> want to do that to my son and like invalidate his feelings and thoughts. Um, but since but... he's not listening to this right <laughs> now. He's um, yeah, he's got it freaking easy. Um, so he was in the hospital for three months. My sister and I were in the hospital for 11 months when we were born. Wow. Um, he I love how you say he's got it easy and you say and the first thing you say is yeah. <laughs> my son was in the hospital for know, 3 months so, any parent hearing that is like holy sweet baby jesus so, that is fucking sounds, horrifying it sounds ludicrous right but 
I live like this complex care life that mm-hmm. I often sometimes forget that people outside of complex care or medical complexity, like yeah. this is just like mind boggling for. Yeah. But well, like, then in this world, it's just like normal. Yeah. So, can, and three months is like a short time. Sure. To- can you go into like complex care uh, for, for like infants and, and children? Like yeah. what, the, cause you know, Taylor just had a baby and um, I mean, it seemed like, that was a pretty, that was a pretty like easy pregnancy, right? Like in terms of, uh, uh, yeah, sorry, yeah. easy labor, yeah, reti- like comparatively, comparatively yeah. to most people. It was just like, yep, yeah. Kyle had the baby. Everything was good. And yeah. the baby's just like fucking yeah. having a great time killing it. Um, exactly. complex like care is easy a, in general is not the right word. It's a relative term to a, to an process. always, to an smooth, always challenging there we go, a smooth process. That's Pre- right. Predictably um, so, but like, what <laughs> what does what is complex care and in speci- like specifically to your son's needs and and what he yeah. experienced? Yeah, so it's always super confusing for people because I'll say with our daughter, we were home like within twenty hours of birth, so that was super easy, smooth sailing. Our son was three and a half months in the NICU with complex care. So any child with a tracheostomy or any child that relies on technology to basically live is part of complex care. There's less than than 1% of kids in Canada are part of the complex care population. So when I say that, like, no wonder why people are like, don't, they're like three months, that's a long time. But like, for these 1% of people, like that's not a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so complex care is just complex care teams where you have a lead pediatrician that follows you for your duration of like 17 to 18 years in the program. And literally I can text or call his complex care physician. I will be getting a call back or a text back like within minutes and I will also have access to ENT, RT, social work, like all the other allied health professionals as well. Um, because with complex care, um, some of the disabilities that kids have with complex care teams are life-threatening. So there's all these resources directed to complex care teams to make healthcare accessible easy, well, not easy to use, but um, more accessible and user-friendly for families living with complex care needs. Mm-hmm. Is there, is, uh, like Jer said, I just had a baby a year, uh, she's yeah. a year old and, and uh, you're, you're very right. Like if you're outside of that world, I mean, a doctor coming to us and saying that Zaya had to spend, you know, a day in the hospital would have been like yeah. longer yeah. than longer than we did would have yeah. would have been would have set off a whole bunch of of alarms. alarm bells and emotions. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as somebody who, as some you knew you so you knew genetically that your son had CCHS before he was born. So when when he was born and he has to stay in the NICU, mm-hmm. um, I assume that's probably a very different a very different experience from having a child. And then being told that they need to keep your child in the NICU and we don't know why. Yeah. Like, you know why. Like, how like, yeah. is that a different so, experience? Yeah, I think it is because um, 
I feel like we were more maybe emotionally prepared for a NICU stay than most parents. Like we had this positive result when I was five months pregnant. We got to meet our NICU doctors beforehand. We knew like the course of treatment. We already knew what it was. There wasn't like the shock of searching Google for a possible diagnosis Mm -hmm. and doing what new parents do, like going on Google, thinking the worst worst thing possible, um, and like just all that shock, right? So Mm -hmm. when our son was born, um, thankfully, like the labor and delivery went well. We got to hold him after he was born. And then when he was about 27 minutes old, he started falling asleep and he was intubated and sent to the NICU at that time, which is like really unusual for for parents of CCHS kids. Usually the baby is taken like right away and intubated right away. But my labor and delivery team were amazing. And they knew that that was so important to me was if um, when my son was born, if it was possible to hold him, that we wanted to do that. So um, we were thankfully able to do that. Um, we were educating a lot of the doctors on what CCHS is. Right. And we were educating them that um, breastfeeding and bottling are possible with CCHS and a tracheostomy because usually they suggest G-tubes or feeding tubes. And it was when our son was born, a lot of the nurses in the NICU had never seen a trachea <laughs> baby orally feed before. So that was a whole new experience for the OTs and the nurses to support breastfeeding and bottling in a treat baby. I suppose that's probably one of the one of the most challenging aspects um, for your parents, for you now um, mm-hmm. with your with your son is how a rare disease can you, you, you like how how a rare disease talking to doctors might sometimes feel like you're searching Google because yeah because like yeah. it's it's so it's so rare nobody knows nobody know nobody knows yeah. only like hyper specialists are probably aware of like the Except like the, the in the ins and outs yeah. of of CCHS. and you're like given the bad cases all the time right on Google like you yeah. oh, like you only learn about the most severe. Or the most, or the cases that weren't caught, so the babies passed away. Yeah. So, um, thankfully, like we knew going in what to kind of expect, and certainly, like in the NICU, there are lots of traumatic moments in the NICU. Like for any NICU parent, there, like our son coded multiple times, oh and God. that was very traumatic. Um. And then just like hearing, like it's a NICU, so you hear other babies have codes as well, and you hear Mm. other babies pass away, and just like you become really close with other NICU parents because Mm -hmm. you're all in it together, and you're all um, you're all in a state of shock that. These are little human beings that are having to be resuscitated like multiple times. Oh, yeah. And um, you just lean on each other to get through that. Man, yeah. Wow. Damn. That's like, it's like, like, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine like 
I feel like after having a, a kid, the way that you see those types of things in like media, like if you're watching a movie or something and it's like something horrible happens to like a baby, it's like after having a kid, you're like, oh, fuck, I can't watch this. Yeah. Yeah. People but told to me be, that I wouldn't but, be able to. I can. But, but it's different. It's way different. Yeah. And yeah, so, but to, but to be in a space where like that is legitimately happening yeah. around yeah. you when you, when you mm-hmm. are just fresh, like with this yeah. new child in your life, like that is, yeah. I, oh, yeah. that's really to think about. So, I totally- yeah. And I think like that trauma aspect related to seeing so many <laughs> re- resuscitations happening is complex care teams are now. Um, have initiatives related to specific PTSD for parents right. um, because they're recognizing like the trauma that these parents are going through, yeah. that some parents are have sustained traumas because they're having to do medical interventions and resuscitations like multiple times throughout <sighs> their daily lives, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think like the mental health um, initiatives that are now coming out for parents of medically fragile and medically complex kids are finally addressing like some yeah. of these needs of parents. Yeah. That's really, yeah. that's really incredible. I, I was just reading, I, I was, well, I was telling you about this this morning. I was just recently listening to a podcast uh, with a, with a kind of a renowned researcher on stress and stress hormones and, mm-hmm. and their impact. And which podcast? And, stop it, Brian. It was Peter Atia, <laughs> And, uh, and, uh, um, my favorite human on earth right now. And, and just the impact of that someone's stress, both in utero and, or sorry, not, not only, not only in like in the world, uh, like mm-hmm. parents stress onto their kids, but also, yeah. also, also in utero, which was a really fascinating piece of yeah. the conversation, but, but how much of an impact that that has and how much, and how that can affect you epigenetically yeah. and how that then can roll into like multi-generational issue. Like it's, it's, it's so much bigger than, mm-hmm. than just the experience that somebody is having right now. Like a, like a traumatic, yeah. a traumatic experience yeah. or traumatic yeah. response, a PTSD response to a traumatic experience that's been had. It's so much wider ranging than that. And it's really, uh, it's great yeah. to hear that those resources are, are yeah. being are considered. Yeah. Yeah. The unresolved trauma and parents, definitely has an intergenerational effect. But the beautiful thing is if that trauma is treated, you can really lessen the impact of potential consequences of, mm-hmm. of that trauma. So, yeah. yeah. I, I'm curious, you, you were saying earlier that your son's now seven. Um, is he now, when he goes to sleep at night, is he on the, uh, on this, like on the CPAP? Yeah, yeah, it's so it's called BiPAP. BiPAP, sorry, right? Uh, yeah, the CPAP yes. is the sorry. Is... The CCHS world would kill me if I let that slide. <laughs> yeah, because... thank you. We said <laughs> we said CPAP the entire time. I know because yeah. <laughs> CPAP does not have like a backup rate on it. Mm-hmm. It just delivers pressures, right? Whereas BiPAP, it guarantees you so many breaths per minute, mm-hmm. which is what people with CCHS needs. You just mm-hmm. don't need the pressure and the volumes you need the actual breathing rate. Right. So is, is that what he uses to sleep at night now? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, the, you know, the transition from that to the, um, to the pacemaker, is that something that he will like that you guys will consider when he's in his like teens or what's the, like, what is the sort of, 
future there? I think like it's come a long way. It's still a pretty invasive surgery. Yeah. So that's something that we'll let him decide when he's older. It's also recommended on only fully grown adults um, because there's a chance of if you continue to grow once you've already had the surgery, the leads between the implant and your phrenic nerve would have to be like redone because of just the growing process. So um, we'll see what Lucas decides to do. He might be happy with the ventilator. He might want to do this surgery. Yeah, it will be up to him. What would you say out of your experience with uh, CCHS, what would you say is the biggest thing that it's taken away from you? Um, Biggest thing, probably the ability to be carefree with, especially as a teenager and young adult, just the ability to be carefree, not having to think too much about consequences for any like risk-taking behavior. Mm -hmm. So like things like drinking or just like going to a sleepover or even things like traveling, like needing to make sure you have your equipment with you when you travel, like just the ability to be carefree and do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's probably the biggest thing that it's taken away, but it also makes you a good planner. So. Totally. Yeah, right. <laughs> what would you say is the biggest thing that it's given you? Um, definitely the connections with other people. So um just being able to connect with other CCHS um, people, being able to be really good friends with some of the nurses that I've come to be connected with, um, being able, like the longevity and relationships that we have with complex care, as well as like my own respirologist. My own respirologist has been following me for 30, 30 years now. So definitely the relationships is the strongest thing and the ability to be in a place where we can advocate for better better healthcare and a better healthcare system because of like our lived experiences. Mm. Yeah. I I would be yeah. um, remiss if I didn't ask you <laughs> this question as a as a fellow identical twin um how much how much do you fucking love having an identical twin sister? Okay, so I actually hated it growing up. <laughs> yeah, hated it. We live in a small town. We were always in the same class, always in the same extracurricular activities. Um, never really formed our own identities outside Ooh. one another until we lived apart. So um, hated it growing up. Now that we are both married and have kids it's freaking amazing yeah Yeah. we actually live like six houses down from each other which (laughs) freaks people out sometimes we both have uh we both have black dogs so yeah it's just um yeah it's awesome now not so great as a kid (laughs) when you first moved in um next to each other i'm sure the neighbors were like oh yeah. Fuck. Wait, what? You know, Shen's, thought, Shen's sleeping with so and so's husband yeah. now. What the fuck? Oh, shit, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I think I had an experience once where I actually was talking to a twin of somebody 
totally thinking like it not, was the other not, twin. No, not knowing that they were twins at all in the oh, first place. Yeah, oh, right. dude, that, I mean, I'm sure that's when, happened to you a when, thousand times. When my brother and I started oh, yeah. like having our own sort of like independent lives and like working at different places in the yeah. city and getting to know people and like and then not sort of telling them that we were identical twins because it didn't come yeah. up in conversation. Yeah. Um, that happened all it's the time. Like, yeah. And like my sister is a teacher and I always get her students like coming up to me because uh, yeah, they annoying. don't know that she's a twin. Yeah. And then I've often had patients go up to her like grocery shopping, <sighs> divulging like healthcare information. <laughs> um, and she's like, yeah, I'm not who you think uh, I am. That's um, and, then, and then they're like, oh, my God. what?" <laughs> Yeah. What? Have, yeah. Have I been imagining that I've, I have yeah. this? I have psychosis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, th- I mean, this is this really has been just like a, a mind blowing conversation. Just mm-hmm. super, super fascinating stuff. Um, I always love being able to sit down and talk to someone who who is dealing with something that's like extremely rare. That I feel like you know probably a real, real small sliver of our listeners are even familiar with or, or even have heard of. Um, it's just, it's just really cool to like get some insight into something that is, um, is fascinatingly rare and, Mm -hmm. and just, and also to see someone like yourself who has thrived and has like, you know, even through the hardship that you've gone through, you're, you're now like, you know, advocating and you've you've got your own child and it just um yeah i'm just really grateful for this conversation that you you applied to be on the show uh because this has been really really fun so on behalf of myself and the guys and all of our listeners thank you so much Shannon. yeah thanks it's been a pleasure being here and thank you for having me as a guest um and i think like even when i started listening a few years ago you've have this way about talking about CF that makes it comfortable for other people to talk about their illnesses. Mm. So I really appreciate that and learning how to be a part of these conversations. Well, yeah. thanks for adding to it. Yeah. Thanks, Shannon. Thanks. Take care. Well, there you go, folks. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, we are coming at you Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And if you are a fan of the podcast and you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do that. First of all, you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading them. You can simply rate the podcast on the Spotify mobile app, if that's where you're listening. Or if you want to join the conversation, hop on over to our Discord. The link is in the show notes of this episode. And uh, we have a lovely little community over there of sickos and non-sickos all hanging out, chatting, And uh, hey, you could even help produce the podcast over there if you want. You can, again, find that link in the show notes below. Sick Boy Podcast is produced and co-hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, and Brian Stever. The show is managed by Jeffrey Lonis over at Talent Bureau. The sound design of this episode is brought to you by Donovan the CPAP Morgan. And of course, the theme music is from the band Take Part. That is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.